Um, and so this also, this message uh, will be also my attempt to honor black heritage in our land. And I want to let you know, I will do it imperfectly um, and inadequately. Um, but my heart, I want to let you know, my heart is to extend respect and honor. I, um, I can't speak for, for everyone else. And I don't claim to represent uh, the completeness of a perspective from any group of people. Um, or, um, and I don't speak for everyone else. Um, but I can and I will, as a pastor, speak for those um, whose voice has been dampened. Um, and I think that in our society that um, uh, there, there are like sound panels in some ways that keep, it's not for lack of volume that people are speaking, but because of just the uh, kind of the institution or the metrics of our society, it dampens some people's voices. And as a pastor, I want to amplify them as best I can. Um, Romans chapter 13 says, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You know, there are debts that aren't merely financial. And in some respects, our nation still has a debt of respect and honor that we owe. And it really is my heart just to make a small deposit against that balance today. I won't pay off the whole sum. But I do want to make a deposit against it. Amen. And it also my heart to offer a passage from Scripture that may give us insight into God's heart on the matter. Because I know when we can gather around God's heart on any matter, we find that we are all loved perfectly. We're set free completely in ways that we can't really conceive just with our mind. Um, and that God's plan for redemption in the earth is often bigger than the arguments of the day and maybe the things that we find ourselves arguing about in our culture today. You know, my kid, uh, at my kid's school, my kid's school operates one of the only legal bingo gambling nights um, on the Central Coast. Um, this is part of ancient California law uh, that allows some places to get these permits to operate legal you know, bingo gambling nights. And part of our commitment as parents is to serve at these bingo nights since it raises so much money for the school. Now, many of you are probably unaware that there is a whole subculture of bingo followers. These people are serious. I mean, they have special daubers. They build shrines at their tables. They have, I mean, lucky amulets and lucky places to sit and lucky numbers and lucky outfits and lucky food orders. I mean, they play bingo together almost every night of the week somewhere. Um, I mean, because at different places, they operate their permits on different nights. So these people, they, they follow from one place to the next, up and down the coast. And part of the deal of serving is being very quiet during the games, which is not my strong suit. <laughs> I am not a quiet soul, which has gotten me into a lot of trouble from <laughs> time to time. Um, but my first night was uh, serving there um, about seven years ago was a, a pride-swallowing experience. Because for four hours, I was beckoned all over the room for the 
craziest things, berated for being too loud, too slow, with bringing the cookies too fast, bringing the coffee too many times, um, not bringing the right kind of pull tabs to this table, and not pulling out of the right level of the stack on that side of the table. And I... uh, you know, there's a lot of unwritten rules to these bingo gatherings, and if you've never been, you just don't know what they are. You can't just get a, a, a list that says, here are all the unwritten rules, or they wouldn't be unwritten. Um, and really, people hardly looked at me. And when they did, there was no real recognition of me as a person. I started to feel like an outsider. I was, I was ignored. I was unappreciated. I felt insulted and overlooked. I mean, and I'm not trying to blow, sensationalize a bingo game, but, you know, I had these feelings. This is my kid's school. I'm like, you know, what's going on? Well, towards the end of the night, as my anger was brewing, I, I, I heard myself, Michelle, we, we are going to have to buy our way out of this. You know, I'm not coming back here and doing this again. And you know, we're, we're going to have to make some other contribution um, to the school, and I overheard myself say, they don't even know who I am. And in that moment, I knew I had just stepped in it with the Lord. And the Spirit of God arrested me, really, and he said, you're right. And then I waited for the punchline, and in that pregnant silence, I realized that that was the punchline. And what he didn't say, but what I knew, is that they didn't know who his son was either. And would I serve them anyway? They really didn't know who I was. They didn't see my gifts, my talents, my heart, my dignity. I was a function and not a person. But you know the saving grace of that night for me is I could walk out the door at the end of the night back to a world that did know who I was. I could walk out the door that night back to a world that respected me, that looked up to me for what I've achieved and for what I've accomplished, celebrated my gifts and talents. I walked back out into a world that knew who I was. But you know, all over the world... There are refugees and immigrants and minorities, mentally ill people and marginalized people of all kinds that have no door to walk out of. They wake up and walk through their days in a seemingly unescapable reality where their humanity is not seen, not respected, not honored. It is harder to live as a minority anywhere. And that's not something unique to the American experiment. And it's, I'm not saying that everyone who lives a, mi- a life as a minority has a harder life than everyone who doesn't. I'm just saying that there is an enhancement to the struggle of life, and there are obstacles that are faced if you live as a minority in a place than if you don't. It is harder to buy real estate. It is statistically harder to get a job. There are fewer socioeconomic connections. There are often language barriers. There are even some social aptitude disadvantages. People expect you to have a mastery of social norms in the majority culture. You know, Redfin did a survey here that said, and they found they sent out a bunch of kind of um, uh, fake loan applications 
to buy homes. And even with identical numbers, if the name on the application sounded ethnic, it was 30% less likely to qualify. And it's not as though there's somebody sitting behind some desk somewhere trying to put other people down. Although there might be, but that's probably not, that's not the, probably the prevailing wind. But there's things in the air and there's things in society. There are, when you are part of the majority culture, there's elements of that. Um, it's just a reality. And it's a reality that we as the people of God should be looking to change and looking to make deposits of respect and honor against. And what further exacerbates this minority experience for black people in America is that their ancestors were brought here from Africa against their will, bought and sold as property. And it is something that many have worked diligently for and in some cases have given their lives to correct. But there's still work to be done. There's still a balance of debt, a balance of honor, a balance of respect. And in that context, I think it is very appropriate and very godly to honor the accomplishment and the contribution black people have made under duress to our country and for the grander purpose many have served for the kingdom of God. Is everyone still with me? All right. So we're going to take a look at a passage from the book of Isaiah. And so if you, can, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 49, and I'm going to set up a little context because um, I think we can uh, find fellowship and find understanding around the Word of God this morning that might help us um, today and might have an appreciation for God's story of redemption in the earth. So the book of Isaiah, contrary to popular opinion, was not written on a hot and stormy night. God didn't just give the prophet Isaiah 66 chapters of prophecy all in one dose, and then he retired and went and played golf. Didn't happen that way. The book of Isaiah was actually written over his whole lifetime, and in some cases, maybe a little beyond. Um, it uh, was written over almost 100 years, and it's kind of was written in three sections. And the first 39 chapters were actually written uh, when I, most theologians think that uh, you know, Isaiah was in his 20s or as a young man, and it was before Israel and Judah were taken captive by Assyria and Babylon uh, in around, I think, 585 BC. They were taken into captivity for 70 years. Um, and so this first part, and you'll hear things in this first part that, um, like, uh, you know, in Isaiah chapter 6, he'll say, you know, and you know, there's the rose of Sharon, and the increase of his government will be without end, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. And he's prophesying about Jesus, and they're prophesying about the kingdom of God, saying they're going to beat their swords into plowshares, and we're going to have peace and kumbaya and raise up grain, um, and, and the land's going to be fruitful, and it's going to be amazing, and God's going to bring judgment on the earth, and the glory of the Lord will rise upon the church, and all that is absolutely true. But it's not the whole story. It wasn't the whole of the prophecy that God gave to Isaiah. It was just the first installment. And if you just read the first 39 chapters, you might come away with an us and a them theology. And then something happened. Assyria overran Judah. And they took Isaiah and many other people from Israel, 
as exiles into captivity. And they occupied Judah and Israel. And the second part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, was written in captivity. When Isaiah was wrestling and in some cases arguing with the Lord over what his plan was and about his significance in the story. And then the third part of Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66, was written after the 70 years of captivity had ended. And Isaiah was either a very old man or it was actually his disciples, could be from captivity, that had finished these writings bearing the prophet's name. And interestingly enough, that captivity ended when Jonah came and prophesied in Nineveh and brought the word of the Lord to the people in Assyria, and they repented. Just to give you a little context of the grander story of redemption that the Lord was working. And so uh, this is just a map. You can see Assyria, um, Assyria up in the top kind of area of yellow. That was the kind of the border of the Assyrian Empire. And that little red dotted line up is where the exiles were brought, where Isaiah and many of his people were brought up um, to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time. And so we'll pick up right at the beginning of um, yes, we'll pick up right at the beginning of, uh, of chapter forty-nine. And the Lord comes to uh, Isaiah and He says, "Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me." He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. At the beginning, God comes to Isaiah and shows him who he is, how he's equipped Isaiah. Because Isaiah needed a dose of confidence, some comfort, because what he all of the glory that he had prophesied in earlier in his life, he was questioning and wondering exactly how that was going to work out after he'd been brought into captivity. And so oftentimes, when we find ourselves in a place of captivity, God first comes to show us who we are to him, because that's ultimately the most important. That's how we gain confidence and courage in the face of adversity, or when we're asked by the assignment of the Lord to do things that are sacrificial and difficult, God reminds us first of who we are to Him, how He has equipped us. He's compassionate first. And this is what Isaiah, how Isaiah responds to the word of the Lord. But I said, how many of you have come to a place where you ended up saying, but I said to the Lord. But I said, and I'm glad that it is recorded what Isaiah said because it gives me hope for some of my arguments that I've had with the Lord. But I said, Isaiah, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hands, and my reward is with my God. You know, he's basically saying, I've, I prophesied for you, Lord. I gave voice 
to what you gave me to give. And I, I prophesied and I encouraged your people. I must have missed something. I've labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing. So I guess I'm just going to go back to the old sovereignty lesson and say, all right, well, whatever's in the Lord's hands is due me. I guess you're in control, God, because I don't get it. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He is setting his sights on what he believes his assignment is. And you can see that even though the Lord has said, I have made you a polished arrow, and I've hidden you in a quiver, and I'm going to equip you, and I'm going to use you for a purpose, we then make assumptions about how he will use us. And Isaiah's assumption is that, all right, I guess my assignment is just to get these people, my people of Israel, back out of captivity, back to where they started, to restore the tribes of Jacob. I guess that's my assignment. I prophesied when they were free. Now we've been taken into captivity. I guess, Lord, my assignment is just to get them back to where they started. Have you ever made an assumption about how God will use you? Based on your frustrations? Based on how difficult a situation is? Isaiah did. And then the Lord responds again. And it's hard for me to even read this, honestly, without just kind of welling up inside. The Lord says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And we see a light into the Lord's plan. He will make you a light for the Gentiles. You know, this is in no way It in no way condones captivity or the injustice of any kind, oppression or discrimination. I want to say God hates injustice in any form. And instead, God invites us to look through his eyes to see the humanity of all people, even the ones persecuting us. Isaiah was in a place where he was captive, and God was speaking to him that it's not just enough. I don't just want to get you out of the spot you're in. I want to eradicate sin from the human condition. I want to see redemption come not just for the oppressed, but for the oppressor. You know, the sin of slavery was not born in the hearts of those colonizing America the moment they saw black people. Slavery and greed pre-existed in the human condition, and it was merely aroused by the disgusting dynamics of that age in history. 
and the voices that God used to bring about redemption, not just for righting this injustice, but eradicating the sin of slavery from the earth. We're in many cases black. Even um, in the civil rights movement, long after maybe the battle for slavery was won, there were those that wanted, um, in, in Martin Luther King's camp, there were those that wanted to get and move the people out from this land where they were hated, where they felt like outsiders, where they were discriminated against. They said, we need to bring our people back to Africa where we belong, where we came from. There were those that felt justified in taking to riots and violence. And, I, and maybe justly or, or fairly so by the way they were treated. But Martin Luther King, he addressed his people because he had a clarity of what call was on his life and what purpose he was to serve and what the end game was. And he addressed his camp and people in, uh, in one of the Baptist churches. This is from a more obscure speech. Um, and little bits of it have been broken out into kind of one-liner quotes. But in context, he said, um, if the cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. Because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. The limitation of riots, moral questions aside, is that they cannot win and their participants know it. Hence, rioting is not revolutionary, but reactionary because it invites defeat. It involves an emotional catharsis, a release, but it must be followed by a sense of futility. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. We must come to see that the end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience. And if physical death is the price that I must pay to free my white brothers and sisters from a permanent death of the spirit, then nothing can be more redemptive. Sometimes our thinking about when the Lord says, this has been a too, Isaiah, you've thought your thinking's been too small. Sometimes our thinking about what is too small is that God's going to give us a bigger platform and a bigger stage and more fame and that people are going to recognize and respect the work that we're doing more. Oftentimes that's not the case. The big work for God is sometimes done in captivity. The big work for God is done out of the headlines and off the stage and out of the limelight. And it's here where I want to bring respect and honor. He brings us to a place and he brought Isaiah to a place where he could see 
his plan, a higher place, not a more famous place, a higher place. And I believe that in my life, when I have been most attuned to what the Lord is doing, and I can see the humanity of the people around me, I am most willing to sacrifice. I am most willing to turn the other cheek. I am most willing to lay my life down. And we have had many people in this nation live for long periods of time turning the other cheek, living without the level of dignity, respect, or honor that their humanity merits. Three of them were highlighted in a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Hidden Figures. And the woman in the center, her name's Catherine Goebel, and uh, Mary Jackson is on the left, and Dorothy Vaughn is on the right. Um, and they were part of a human computing group. You know, before the IBM, people had to do all the computations. And as our nation was racing to get a rocket into space and actually an astronaut into space, there's a lot of math that had to be done. And it was always changing because as they're designing this capsule that's supposed to hold a person and they're designing the rocket and they're getting all this stuff put together and they're looking at weather and as they're learning more about the orbit of the earth and this, there's all these computations that have to be done and redone and redone and redone. And they really needed the smartest people around. And the director of the, of the uh, rocket launch group at NASA got to a point where he didn't really care as much about the social norms as he did about getting a person into space. And he said, I need to find the best minds out there. And one of those minds was Catherine Goebel. She was probably the best mind for analytic geometry in a generation. And she was brought into the, uh, the inner circle of NASA for a time. And this wasn't ancient history. I mean, my dad worked for Boeing Aerospace in this age. He worked on contracts for NASA, for the Air Force in this time. This is not some generations and generations ago. This is just a generation ago. There are many people still alive today that remember this of what Catherine endured and the difference that she was able to make for a grander purpose, not just for our nation, but for the kingdom of God. All of these three women were sold out for Jesus. They were followers of Christ. And they walked into this knowing that they would be disrespected, dishonored, they would have to be put up with all manner of insanity in order to be a blessing and in order to see the thread of redemption come, not just for their brothers and sisters, but for all of our brothers and sisters. But I want you to know that following Jesus is signing up to be in the minority voluntarily. Jesus said in this world we would love, we would have tribulations, we would have trouble, 
we would be misunderstood, we would be persecuted, that the world in some cases would literally hate us. We would have to be in the world, but not of the world. And he also said not to fear, that he has overcome the world and all its systems. We voluntarily signed up for this. We should find camaraderie here, not arguments. We of all people should understand the plight of those in the margins. We of all people should understand God's heart. We of all people should be first in line to see the humanity in all our brothers and sisters, to look out and be first in line to extend credit and make deposits where debts of respect and honor remain. We of all people should be first to celebrate those who have overcome and brought great contributions, not only to our nation, but to the kingdom of God, who have met every manner and form of physical force with soul force. What kind of soul force do you have this morning? What kind of physical force do you face in the world today? in our community, in our society. I'm not trying to create problems where there's not ones or highlight great injustices where they're not. But when we signed up for Jesus, we signed up to be sacrificial, to serve those who don't understand us, to serve those who persecute us and bless those who persecute us. Because in that, God's redemption works. He eradicates sin from the human condition. He frees the hearts of the captives and the ones holding people captive, either intentionally or unintentionally. He frees the oppressed and the oppressor. That's God's heart. And so today I want to invite you to extend respect and honor in ways that you might not before. You'll have the opportunity to meet people that have learned about a person's life in this interactive event. Um, you'll learn about Bessie Coleman, the first black woman to earn a pilot's license, which is important to me because I love flying. I just got my pilot's license last year. Um, the, uh, you'll learn about Claudette Colvin. She started uh, actually the protest against segre segregated busing months before Rosa Parks really took up as a figurehead of that cause. You'll learn about Thomas Jennings, the first black man to receive a U.S. patent. Harriet Tubman, a leader of the Underground Railroad who helped get people from the south where they were property to the north where they had a chance. You'll learn about Elijah McCoy, who actually uh, registered 57 U.S. patents that improved the steam engines for trains and locomotives by delivery. You'll learn about Garrett Morgan, who invented the sewing machine and traffic lights, and Kenneth Washington, who was a groundbreaking Hollywood actor. You'll learn about Lonnie Johnson, who was a NASA space engineer and inventor of the super soaker, guns that my kids play with. You'll, you'll learn about Madam C.J. Walker, who was the first African-American self-made millionaire. You'll learn about Mary Van Britten Brown, 
who was the inventor of the closed-circuit TV security system. You'll learn about Vivian Theodore Thomas, who is a world-renowned pediatric surgeon and invented many techniques that um, were used for generations about how to operate on little babies' brains. You'll learn about characters from Allensworth, California, and the Black Wall Street and Harlem Hellfighters. And you'll be able to satisfy your gut with some soul food. You know, one of the things about our church is that's one of the five graces that maybe I'll talk about at some point in the future, but some things that are core value to us as a kingdom culture. And the kingdom culture is not just making room to celebrate this person or that group of people and this group of people on this day and that group of people on this day. It recognizes that we have all been born again into a new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, everybody matters. Everyone's humanity and the message and the reflection of God's glory that comes through that person is celebrated and honored and made a part of the whole. That we become as a kingdom, as a people, when I give you a holy hug, a little bit of you gets off, gets off on me and a little of me gets off on you. It's about a culture that begins to represent every thread of glory that he's placed in people. It's not just to tolerate. It's to honor, a culture of honor. I believe in heaven there's not going to be Korean services and black services and white services. We're worshiping together. And here at Agape, we worship together. We haven't arrived. We don't own the real estate in this, in this understanding or in this place in Christendom. But it is important to us. It's a path we intentionally walk down. It's a path we'll continue to walk intentionally down. I think it's what heaven's supposed to be like. How about you? Heavenly Father, we come to you as a people that have been born again into your kingdom. You've placed the banner of Jesus over us. And I know that in this room there are probably many convictions, some at odds with each other on this issue and others. But Lord, I pray that you'd knit us together that you'd soften the sharp places, that you'd help us to be a people that extend respect and honor, that give voice to those who can't speak, to amplify the voices who should be louder, to make room and honor the sacrifices and the contributions of all those in our midst, to recognize what it's like to overcome in the name of Jesus against all obstacles. To be willing to sacrifice and be part of a people that serves a world sometimes blinded by every manner of sin and unrighteousness. Make for us, make us that people, Lord. I pray you'd help us. You'd knit us together. 
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.